Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Trap Draw Podcast. I am Randy with my guy TC. TC, good evening as it is. How Hello, are you? Randy. We're 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 on the ball this week. We're recording on Sunday night immediately after the NLU pod. Yeah, we are uh, we are on top of it. Uh first things first, I'm gonna kick it straight away to Mr. Jeezy. Awesome. Thank you very much, Mr. Jeezy. Um, I wonder if Jeezy's an F1 fan. You think he watched the race this morning? You know, I, I bet he was excited for the NASCAR race that was supposed to happen tonight. They were, they were going to do a dirt track, right? On their, what, they were putting mud down on <laughs> Bristol? That, I, so stupid. Getting back to their roots, they said. That was, Truly provocative idea. idea and it rained there. a lot, which we know because we had to <laughs> cancel a bunch of people's stays at our Sweetens house. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, hey, I give them credit for trying to uh, thinking outside the box, trying a new idea. Um, this is San Antonio week. Do we want to break some hearts right from the top? Yeah. Uh, listen, apologies. San Antonio is an interest. It seems like a really. It's a place I know nothing about. I'm right there with you. This it's is a, no slight to San Antonio. It's a city. It's one of the biggest, exactly. top 10 biggest cities in the country, and I don't know shit about it. I couldn't tell you much at all. Um, we're not going to talk about San Antonio, but that that's not a reflection of our interest level in San Antonio. It's just truly things are taking precedent. It's a fluid situation, and yeah. um, you know, Tex- Texas is a big place. We look forward to covering it for years to come. I think uh, you know that's... Hopefully, we're doing many more years of these. Exactly. Right? And we're going to be back in San Antonio. The Valero that happens every year. Unfortunately. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, I kind of like the course. Do you? I thought I it do. was the stinky course. No, I like it. I, I, I used to hate it. I like it now. <laughs> I always feel like Cameron Tringali competes there. Uh, it's always a weird, weird leaderboard. Yeah. Uh, all right. So what, what do we need to clear up before we... Uh, big win for your Kings. Oh, my God. On Pete. Saturday night, buzzer beater. Speaking of buzzing, I was buzzing. I actually stayed up, watched it on my computer. Harrison Barnes, De'Aaron Fox, uh, three-quarters length of the court, inbound to Harrison Barnes, turnaround, game-winning three-pointer. What I mean, it's just it, it makes being a Kings fan worth it sometimes. Your Kings you know? made a trade last week, too, with the Pistons, right? They got DeLon right. They made a couple trades. I actually kind of like what they did. I, I think they picked up some sneaky uh, depth pieces for next year. DeLon Wright, Terrence Davis, who potentially a sick guy. We're monitoring that situation. Um, I saw you reaching out to uh, your back channeling with Bunky. Trying to figure out what the deal is. Hopefully he can be a little bit of a 3 and D guy, stay out of trouble in Sacramento. Yeah, they didn't unload Buddy Heald, though. That's that's the one disappointment. Hopefully they can they can offload him this offseason. But uh, have won six out of seven, TC. They they, they are the, the streakiest team. They'll win six out of seven like they have now, and then I'm sure next week uh, they'll start a eight-game losing streak again. It's <laughs> You just never quite know. But they're, with, they're at least making it interesting trying to get that um, – 
get into the playing tournament this year. They got to get to tenth place in the in the West. I want to give a shout out to my Hawks. Sure, they, they broke off the coach at the All Star break. They they've been on a tear since. Validated. <laughs> Yeah, right, I mean, they got a lot of flack. From, you, you can't argue with the on-court you know? stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, sure. Okay. Uh, the biggest thing I'm burning on right now is is just hit I, me. I can't get over the fact. I can't get over the the. It'll probably be decades by the time we're done with it. The decades of of fruits that the Laramie Tunzel oh. trade. It's yielding for the Dolphins. We just had a, a another iteration of that trade this week, right? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, by the end of it, they're going to have like 15 first round picks because of it, and they're just going to keep trading down and trading out and all this stuff, all because Laramie Tunzel smoked pot out of a fucking gas mask, which was sick. Admittedly, <laughs> <laughs> was so sick. Yeah, uh, yeah. They they traded down. What did they trade down to? Twelve. Swapped, and they swapped traded with back the Niners. Up to six. Oh, that's right. They traded the back up. Yeah, strange. I think it's. I feel solidifies. like six is a weird spot. I, unless they just want receiver, it, it, it probably gives them. I'm thinking their at choice this of point receiver. Now the, the Falcons are at four. I'm feeling. I, I think they should. They either need to trade out, which seems yeah. obvious, or if they don't trade out, they should just get Jamar Chase. Just or go bomb threat. Pitts from Florida. I love Pitts. That'd be nasty if you had Juan Smith and Ridley, Pitts, Pitts seems, and Gage and Hayden Hurst. You could. Oh. Pitts seems like the next prototype, like where where the game is headed. Uh, you're a, you're a big Devontae Smith guy. Love him. Uh, he's way too skinny and nebbish oh, for my taste. No, I think he's I think he's light. Much to, to use a, a word that you used the other week, I think he's lithe, not uh, nebbish. And then and then your 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 uh, your Bengals. Well, I think it sets up pretty well for them to be able to take. I've I've actually heard they want to trade out, but I, I think they're targeting now a left tackle. The, or, the Oregon kid. They can get Sewell at five, or if they want to trade down to like even oh, mid-teens, um, they might be able to grab. I think that kid from Wisconsin, Slater, is a, uh, Slater, is like the second best tackle. I just I, I think they should I think they should buy groceries for, <laughs> oh, for uh, Burrow. Believe me, TC, <laughs> I do too. The the whole thing is though, is, is, will Burrow be able to stand and throw and the ball? Just just keep just t- <laughs> second, third, fourth rounders. Just mind depth. Yeah, yeah. Oh God, Chase would be a fun addition uh, in stripes. That's be for sure. Awesome. Uh, God, what else we got going on? Uh, big article about Valdosta, Rush Probst. We may need to do a whole podcast on that. Uh, yeah, I feel like that, that deserves rules. That deserves a lot of attention. But um, hey, I'm nub. Just, my nub. just some shady high school football going on right up uh, the road from us. Yeah, up in Valdosta. I know ESPN had an article earlier this week. People can find that to to kind of get a lowdown on on what's going on. But it sounds like uh, you know uh, paying. Paying families to move into the district. Uh, he, he wants some funny money. Rush was saying that he had the Hoover Police Department when he was up in Birmingham. Yeah. He had the Hooverville Police Department doing doing drug bus stops on I-20 and then funneling the money to the football program. <laughs> to high school football. Just yeah. He 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 uh he accused Saban and UGA of, of oh, all sorts recruits. of malfeasance. Yeah. yeah. Which look, all of it's coming up from Mobile and um, Bear Bryant's son. If I have to be a hundred percent honest, <laughs> I would believe all of it. Totally, I, I absolutely would believe all of it. Um, what else do we have to get to? Jude, I, there was a uh, Condé Nast released a list of Saw best airports. That. Should we wait on that? Should we 
digest think, a little bit we, on that? Yeah, I think we need to really dig in and, and, okay. and do that. There were a few head scratchers there just scanning <laughs> you it. guys at Savannah Hilton Head International Airport are really punching above their weight. Uh, Indianapolis made the list. I've, Which, you know what? Indianapolis is a good airport. I was going to say I've never flown in or, or out of Indianapolis, so I don't know. but The only time I've ever flown... Actually, you know what? I came to visit you at IU. That's right. And then... Uh, the other time was when we were going up to Colorado. I flew into Indianapolis. Oh, no kidding. On AirTran. Yeah. Remember when we went to that Sklar Brothers show <laughs> yeah. in Bloomington? Yeah. That, was, that was awesome. That was delightful. Yeah. Um, gosh, what else? I got to, you know, in keeping with the theme of today's podcast, I got a, I got a note from a, a friend in the alcohol world. He said the choke points are killing, killing alcohol distribution right now. All alcohol? Liquor, wine. Huh. Um, you know, and, and it's not just international choke points, domestic choke points. The trucking industry is a mess right now. Hmm. It's, it, it's hard to find truck drivers. Mm, mm, I mean, mm, shit, it's hard to find any labor right now, you know? Yeah. Uh, speaking of airports, though, is United opening up some some routes to CVG? They are. They're opening up all sorts of routes God. from uh, from the Midwest to the Atlantic Coast in uh, Charleston, Myrtle Beach, Savannah, wow. Portland, Maine. Wow. Yeah. Huh. CMH, CVG, Cleveland. Got to get those Ohioans out to the beach. Those so, pasty Ohioans. We'll see. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. You know what? We'll save that. Uh, we had some. Um, we had some. Some stuff from from the Austin Pod. People saying, "Hey, you know, D Man, uh, <laughs> Crime Dog, <laughs> maybe not as in tune with that with the." <laughs> The trendy goings on in Houston just because he's got a he's got a newborn. Of I course, said, you know that's fair. That's yeah, fair. of course. Um, I think he would probably be the first to admit. Yeah, he was. He said. <laughs> um, somebody said, uh, "Enjoyed the Austin Pod as a Dell employee. I'm obligated to tell you that Michael Dell started the company in his UT dorm room, not in a garage. Mm, hate that. So that's a mea culpa. Hate that. I'll, I'll apologize for that. Would also recommend Randy look into how Dell's equity stake in VMware is valued and how that drove the Dell EMC acquisition. Okay, a lot. You're throwing Mike a lot. Dell of has some um, creative corporate finance minds around him. I want okay. you to dig deeper there. That's okay. some homework for you. All right. Yeah, gonna have to learn what all those letters mean, but we'll we'll try to do that. Um. Gosh, we got little Kimmy bucking his head in North Korea, shooting off some ballistic <laughs> missiles shooting into off some fireworks. Uh, yeah, not allowed to shoot those into um, into international waters there, especially in the Sea of Japan. They don't like that. No. Uh, we've got um, God. We, China had a summit with Iran. They're trying to cozy up to Iran right now. Um, Is that response to the sanctions? Oh, assuredly. Um, let's see here. What else? I think that's that's really it, man. Um, we're, we're efficient. We'll regroup next week and, yeah. and dive into some of these. Uh, You're moving this week, allegedly. Some people don't believe it. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna post the destination on on April first, like I always said. I, I pe- people doubted that I'm, you know, a man of my word and telling the truth. Uh, Big Flask is going on CNBC tomorrow. Monday morning. Yeah. I'm sure people won't hear this in time, but you can catch a just absolutely. Uh, <laughs> Gonna tear it up on the Maria Barta Barti Romo Barta Romo show. Uh, apparently, timeshares, uh, <laughs> short-term vacation rentals are just driving uh, the return of leisure spending. Love that for Big Flask. I saw he got a new scooter. Do you see he I got did. a he got a new uh, MF branded scooter? I, I need to get in the MF store. 
Yeah. We need to buy some MF apparel. We do apparel. need some MF apparel. Big Flask, if you're listening, send us some. God, don't make us go buy some. No, I'll buy it. It's supporting the charity. That's true. You know? I apologize for it. I'm going to get out in front of that. I'm going to apologize right now. We absolutely will buy some Big Flask. Um, gosh, what a, I don't even think we've thanked any of our sponsors yet, Randy. Uh, we just have one sponsor. We're gonna we're gonna actually thank them in just a little bit. Should we talk about some folks we efforted? We should. Uh, or candidly, we didn't really effort anybody this this week. I mean, there's got to be some people that we efforted. I right? mean, a few weeks ago when we were putting out our preliminary flyers, uh, we efforted a, f- a few of what, what would you call San Antonians, right? I believe San Antonians. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I think the first thing I think of is the Admiral, David Robinson, oh. and the big fundamental, Tim Duncan. And the main butter and egg man, Tony Parker. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Coach Pop. Really, anybody from the Spurs I, I would have taken. Yeah. I feel like, uh, yeah, Coach Pop, just a, just a all-around fantastic human being, I think. I'd, I'd love to talk to him about his time spent at Pomona. 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 When he was Poosh is gonna be all up in your oh, ass. Yeah, sorry, Poosh. <laughs> relax, relax. Uh when he was a coaching a, a shitty division three basketball team. That fascinates me. If anybody wants a, a great thing to read this afternoon, Google Greg Popovich, uh division three basketball coach. I, I believe it's a Grantland article. Okay. Uh I'm not really finding a whole lot. Jim Lehrer has some <laughs> uh Tommy Lee Jones' ex wife was the daughter of a San Antonio mayor. Um, I mean, I, I mean, what about really like Daniel any, Boone? Like, what about Daniel Boone? Should we throw it all the way back to like the Alamo? Possibly. Neil was said, that Daniel Boone? Neil or was said that Davey something? Do you know your Davey Alamo Crockett. history? I don't know my no. Oh God, we're <laughs> waiting in some dangerous territory right now. Neil said that the that the Alamo is the is the least impressive historical <laughs> like <laughs> monument or you know. uh Historical place that he's ever been. I think Davy Crockett's who we're after. He he's the one who I think who died at the Alamo. And Neil, uh, I don't think Neil's allowed back in San Antonio again oh, ever. That's maybe catch Neil in person and give him a couple beers and ask him <laughs> ask him those stories. Um, I think Shaq spent some time in in San Antonio, didn't he? Doing what? I don't know. For leisure? <laughs> yeah, after returning from <laughs> Germany, Shaq's family settled in San Antonio. Huh. I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. How about he'd, that? He'd be a fun guest. Oh, he'd talk Bo like Outlaw? He'd talk like this. <laughs> uh, could. Bo Outlaw from San Antonio. I love Bo Outlaw. You, you remember the the voicemail that he left for our buddy THG? <laughs> no, I don't. You never heard that? No. Oh my god! I remember Q. Remember Quincy? Yeah, yeah, I remember that. I remember one. Q. No, I never heard the bow out the bow outlaw so, voicemail. So, like THG's buddy or something. His dad was a coach, <laughs> or his buddy was like a you know a trainer or something. And, uh, it was like THG's birthday, and so so his buddy has bow outlaw. Leave him a voicemail. Like cameo before cameo, basically. Almost? And he's. Like, <laughs> He's like, hey, Brandon, this Bo, outlaw, just wishing you a happy birthday, my man. I hope it's a good one for you. Like, it, the way that he says it, everything, we, we quoted it it's for like years. Totally Hopefully, like, THG still has it. We'll play it at some if point. We can, if we can wrangle that from, yeah. from our buddy, THG. Um, yeah, uh, I'm seeing a couple astronauts, <laughs> David Scott, Ed White. Um, you know, oh, you know who's from San Antonio? This guy sucked. <laughs> Please tell me. Carlisle Holiday. 
Harlock. Notre Holiday. Dame. Oh, the quarter, Ty yeah. Willingham. He was terrible. Yeah, maybe not his fault though. I don't know. Priest Holmes is from San Antonio. Priest Holmes was pretty good. Uh, Jim Lair, anchor of PBS NewsHour. That guy's a pro. I saw that he he was born in Wichita though. Oh, so that. I don't know. Is you know is he is he not? Um, Tommy Nobis. A uh, lot lot of football players. A lot of football players. I, I hate when they do the, you know, if you, like, lived in San Antonio yeah. for a month, they'll count like, you as a famous person. Stop for gas person. there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't know. The, the San Antonians are going to be fucking livid at us anyway. There's a good Rome caller from San Antonio. I think Gino in San Antonio. Uh, we could have tried to track him down. You know you know who we did effort? We actually did effort. The CEO of HEB. They're, they're headquartered out of San Antonio. He'd be a good one for future years. We yeah. we gotta we gotta we we gotta dig in maybe and maybe even the Klein the the Klein, you know I H E B store manager. I or ran into somebody. Gosh, where where was I? Maybe in Austin. I ran into somebody who was like, "Hey man, big fan." Like, I just wanted to tell you, like, I'm from Klein, and that was my I'm from Klein with a K, <laughs> and that was my home H E B, was the the Klein Bearcat, H E B there, so. Uh, Herb Kelleher, the late chairman of Southwest Airlines. I think he passed away last year. Yeah. He's from San Antonio. Um, I'm seeing Laura Flynn Boyle, but again, she was born in Iowa. I don't know. How are they? Maybe they like filmed a show in San Antonio or something. Oh, she married a San Antonio businessman, Donald Ray Thomas in 2006. That seems like a stretch. Tom Benson, the late uh, owner of the New Orleans Saints. Sounds like his estate is just a fucking disaster too. Like all sorts of kids not talking to each other and just not good. Too much. I think he owned a bunch of car dealerships though. Too much money. Uh, Joan Crawford, the old school actress, was actually born in San Antonio. Couldn't tell you anything she was in. Yeah, I don't. I don't think we're. I don't think we're doing. Doing a service to San Antonio. Here. No, they're they're gonna get pissed. They'll they'll <laughs> let us know everybody. I'm sure that we've that we've missed or uh, um, forgotten about. I Tommy Lee Jones looks like he was. I I said that earlier. You said that. Yeah. Did I black out? Maybe I maybe I conflated it with somebody else. But he was married to some lady who was the daughter of this mayor of San Antonio. Huh. Okay. Like his ex-wife. Yeah. All right. Well, there, there you have it again. If if we did mention it earlier, uh, all right. Who 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 are we talking to? We're talking to the Huntsman, baby. The Huntsman. You guys, you guys have been beating us down, demanding the Huntsman. So we've listened. We got to bring him on. Biggest choke point we've ever seen before. And it's popping off, literally pop, or I guess not popping and off. You're getting an early trap draw this week because we couldn't we couldn't holster it any longer it's no, time it's, sensitive exactly this this is a fluid situation yeah. people need to know when their goods are being delivered exactly uh so we got the huntsman enjoy at man integrated on twitter before we get to that interview though i want to thank uh our, our our aforementioned sponsor tc and that is our friends at DraftKings. of course of course of course i mean i have no i don't i have no idea what's going on in march madness Baylor's really good. Is Sister Jean still in it, or is she? No, she. They lost. Loyola lost oh, in the Sweet my Sixteen. Gosh. Uh, Jean. Hopefully, hopefully, she had a press conference. Uh, I faced the media after the loss. She should have prayed harder, I guess. Uh, 
I, I hope it's it seems like a collision course with Baylor and Gonzaga. I think Michigan is the only other team that is that a Juwan Howard coach Michigan? It team? is. I think Michigan's the only other team that has a legitimate conversation about being one of the best teams in the country. I know Houston fans are gonna get very upset with me for Houston? saying that. Yeah. Calvin Sampson. Really? Got the Cougars playing really well. Kelvin Sampson. Kelvin, yeah. Uh, but take him away. I, I don't need that. He's a cheater, isn't he? He was a cheater. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, he's, I think, he, I think are, he's. Right? Yeah, they all are. He just has gotten caught a couple times. Uh, what do you think about the Shaka Smart? Shaka, what an indictment of University of Texas athletics. Uh, Supposedly he was miserable down there. Just miserable down there. Uh, he's from Wisconsin, which I didn't realize. Uh, truly getting out ahead of, I think, the firing that was coming, either this offseason or next. Sounds like the Texas Tech coach has like the mega buyout, too. He's making really? all sorts of money. And and, uh, and then, yeah, it sounds like an outright mutiny at University of Cincinnati. I'm a, I'm a big Bearcat guy. Six guys are, have entered the transfer portal. John Brannon... The, the, it sounds like he coaches them hard. I think he's. I think he could just be a dick. Uh, they they're talking about these allegations, which nobody has quite said what they are. It, it sounds like he. I, I think pure guess from the outside. I think COVID combined with just riding them very hard uh, created a miserable environment for the players. If I had to guess, which if you want to be soft, go over to Xavier. Is, is that a fireable offense? I don't know, but, um, and I saw Mick Cronin, former UC coach mixing the elite eight chirping the, uh, chirping the G league. Yeah. And, uh, as just, just beat Alabama and, and is now in the elite eight, which, you know, taste it Bearcat fans. Uh, you mean taste it. He lost on his own volition. He's, they got run out of town. Bearcat no, fans were didn't. so over him. Yes, Mick they were. Mick was a great coach. No, I like Mick. Ask Goodbar. Bearcat fans hated Mick. Well, and, and people know Goodbar from the Insta story. Yeah. <laughs> he, was, he was who I was golfing with at Harbortown. Anyway, uh, back to draft. Games. And Indiana hired Mike Woodson, which is a, Former Hawks coach. a curious hire. Uh, very, very interesting One to see how that works out. substantial goatees of all time. <laughs> Just tight. <Yeah. laughs> Just tight goatee. Uh, yeah, our friends at DraftKings. Uh, the tournament obviously is in full swing. The action hasn't disappointed. DraftKings Sportsbook, America's top-rated sportsbook app, is putting new customers in the center of the action. Bet $1 on any tournament game, and if your team wins, you win $100. It's that simple. Turn $1 into $100. Uh, folks, that's 100 to 1 odds. Just pick any college basketball team that's still in the hunt for your shot at winning $100. All it takes is $1 bet and that team winning their next game. There's no better way to put your college basketball knowledge to the test than to put your money where your mouth is with DraftKings Sportsbook. Uh, of course, you can bet all kinds of other sports, golf, baseball, basketball, uh, NBA basketball, whatever you want. Right now, download the top-rated DraftKings Sportsbook app. Use promo code TRAPDRAW, all one word, when you sign up to turn $1 into $100 if the college basketball team of your choosing pulls off the win. That's code TRAPDRAW to turn $1 into $100. For a limited time, only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in Indiana, 1-800-9-WITH-IT. Thank them so much for sponsoring the Trap Draw. And now on to the choke points with the Huntsman. Man integrated.
lots, lots going on in the world, but nothing perhaps more important than what's going on in the uh, over in the Suez Canal. We had to bring in Man Integrated at Man Integrated on Twitter, aka the Huntsman. Uh, the people are clamoring for you, Huntsman. They they need to hear what's going on. Uh, but let's first start with how are you this evening? Good man. It's uh, it's obviously been uh, quite a while to ride the last few days. Um, company that I work for, we've got some cargo on that ship. There's obviously a lot of cargo on vessels north and south of the canal. So uh, everybody's just kind of sort of scrambling to figure out what it all means. And, uh, you know, I wish the news was better, but, <laughs> you know, we're, we're working through it one day at a time. Well, let's start. What, what What's the latest? Uh, what's the latest forecast? What's the latest news? Uh, nobody really seems to know how to pinpoint exactly what's going on. You've got a few issues here. Um, you know, there's 11 or maybe even now 12 uh, tugs that are uh, in the river, you know, lashed to the ship, uh, you know, preparing to do that work. And uh, it's a delicate situation. You're talking about a massive vessel that's, that's lodged, you know, pretty much longitudinally, latitudinally, you know, uh, basically sideways across the canal. It's a longer ship than the canal is wide. Um so what you have is, is, you know, the, the, uh, the bow of the ship or the front of the ship is embedded in, you know, a couple hundred feet, of you know, mud, um, at least a hundred feet from, you know, from the side of the ship to, to the bow or to the front. Uh, and that mud's not, you know, five feet deep. I mean, you're talking 30, 40 feet of mud. Um, you know, they've dredged out. We've all seen the, the, the memes of the little excavator that could and, uh, you know, trying trying to uh, excavate all that mud that's that's uh, up there at the bulbous bow, which is that really odd sort of shaped nose of the ship on the bottom. Um, it, it's just, it's really a disaster, right? And so they have to take a lot of things into account. Uh, what they're going to try right now is, is that what they call the king tide or the, high t- the highest of high tides is coming in here in the next day. Uh, and they are going to, you know, basically hope that they've dredged enough by then the high tide will lift the ship ideally enough to provide the buoyancy they need to just, you know, essentially do a push pull thing where it sort of just, you know, pulls it back and then is able to kind of spin it in the channel. And, uh, it's, it's a pretty, um, you know, the team that's doing it is absolutely the best in the world at what they do. That's Smith salvage team. Where and, are they from? Uh, Where are they out of Netherlands? Okay. Netherlands. So, You've got, you know, you've got the best in the world working on an issue uh, because that issue, frankly, is costing, you know, there's $9 billion. Uh, two days ago, it was $9 billion worth of cargo stuck in the canal. Uh, that, that number so, is... So that's just, the, tr- that's just the cargo, like, that's, that's directly backed up by that? Just the value of the cargo. In fact, it's probably even more now because there's anywhere from 250 to 300 ships at this point that are, you know, that are uh, sitting somewhere north or south of, of the blockades or the blockage. So the uh, these kinds of issues, you know, tend to have a very long tail on them. Even if they freed it today, you still have to transit all of those ships through the canal. Um, it's not like they can pass side by side like a four lane highway. Um you know, they, they have to go in, in convoys and sort of like a construction crew on the highway, you know, where they, you know, they turn the sign and only so many vehicles can go and then they stop you and then the other direction comes a uh, similar sort of deal. So it's um, dumb question. Know, it's, What's yeah. like the, the Suez Canal? Is it a lock system or is it just a straight up like channel of no. water that just runs between two, you know, two like the, the Mediterranean and I guess the, per, the, the, is it the Persian Gulf or the Indian Ocean or? It's uh, connects the Mediterranean to um, the Red Sea, Red and then sea. the Red Sea okay. empties out into the Gulf of Aden and the Indian Ocean. So, 
Suez is, uh, by and large, a free-flowing uh, body of water. It's not a very large lock and dam system the way um, maybe we think of like the Yangtze River or the Mississippi River in the U.S. Um, for the most part, once they're in the channel, they're in the channel. Um, and you have, you know, basically you have a single channel at the north and the south end, and then in the middle of the channel there, um, you it splits into two uh, where they dredged out a new canal here. Uh, I think they finished that work in 2015. And that was to allow for passage of much larger ships. Um, so once they're in, they're in, man. So they have to, uh, if they get stuck in there, they got to tow them back out. What, all right, can we, can we level set maybe for folks? I'm sure everybody's heard by this time of, like, there's a boat uh, stuck in the Suez Canal. Randy, our listeners mm-hmm. have been watching the choke points. Well, well I know, but, <laughs> but what do we know about, what do we know about how this happened? Like, like, how does a boat end up sideways in the Suez Canal? Which, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm with you, man. Like, I saw your tweets about the gray, the gray zone and all that. Like, the fact mm-hmm. that the, the fact that the ship drew a dick and balls on the, um, you know, on the, like, the, their, like if you trace their, their it. path. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's like a clear dick and balls there. Before they got into the canal, before they got stuck. Well, so, I mean, as to that, of course, I cracked up. Right uh, when I saw when I saw the AIS pass. AIS is the uh, uh, the the term for the technology or the transponder system that all the ships use to broadcast their position and, and the name of the ship and and what have you. Um, so those those tracks are actually drawn by the transponder signals saying, "Here's our approximate location, sort of in time and space." And uh, so the ship was either in the world's most hilarious holding pattern uh, at that point, uh, or uh, it was deliberate. And it was uh, actually a pretty impressive bit of, uh, of ship handling, considering you're talking about a 400 meter long, you know, quarter mile long vessel that weighs over 200,000 tons. Um, or or uh, the, the AIS data had been manipulated remotely via some, via some sort of uh, cyber attack. So uh, any of those options are not spectacular. Um, either they really did draw a giant dick in, in the middle of the Great Bitter Lake or whatever, or uh, somebody hacked it, or you know, it was, it, the, the ship was more or less adrift in a very uh, funny uh, holding pattern. So um, but yeah, how it happened, uh, the, the official story is that, um, uh, just after entering into the Southern part, you know, the Southern channel, uh, a, a rogue or freak windstorm kind of came out of nowhere, uh, you know, sandstorm, uh, they set up to 40 knot winds. I checked the weather maps for the day. It didn't, you know, 40 knots is I'm trying to remember my math here, but um, you know, 40 knots is, is a little bit, it's like 57, 55 miles an hour or something like that. Um, size of the ship, you know, big sail, essentially, it's just a huge, enormous vessel, uh, wind caught it broadside and, and then the sandstorm hampered visibility and, and the pilot uh, or captain, I don't know who was actually steering the ship at that point or at the controls of the ship. Nobody really seems to want to admit to it, but apparently in the confusion of the, of the sandstorm and and the wind, they, uh, they (laughs) steered straight into, into the right bank at, at 12 knots. So, um, is there not like a pilot or a, or a, like, I mean, most, most rivers or most ports that you go into, there's a, there's a pilot, right? Like a, a canal pilot or a, or a, yeah. uh, yeah, there was actually two aboard the ship that day. Um, so the the pilots are retained by the Suez Canal Authority. Um, there were two of them actually aboard the ship at the time. You also had you know you also had the captain of the ship or a helmsman who was able to um, you know drive the ship for lack of a better term. 
Um, so nobody, and that's, that's really the dog that's not barking here is, is that a, a, a sandstorm, even, even one that's going 55 miles an hour or, or gusting even higher than that, uh, is likely not to violently turn a ship so quickly, um, that it's able to lodge itself at that angle. Um, you know, my, what we do know at the time is that the ship was in the middle of a convoy because, you know, they run convoys of ships. There's so many ships that go through at once. Uh, it was in the middle of the convoy. It, it seemed to have been lagging behind and they may have, you know, they may have uh, uh, turned on the gas a little bit, so to speak, to try to catch up and, and kind of rebalance the distance in the convoy. And that that's the time at which it happened. Um, my sense of things, because this is a thing that can be done is that the ship was, you know, tampered with in some way, the control systems or the propulsion systems. Um, it's not unknown to happen. Um, there's several incidents involving the U S Navy and, and other commercial ships where, um, these sorts of anomalies have occurred at just the worst time. Um, I suppose given the number of, of ships that are in the water worldwide at any given time, I mean, you're talking 50, 60, 70,000 ships uh, at any given time are on the water. Uh, these things are bound to happen, but they, you know, you're talking about very big splashy things that tend to happen at the worst place at the worst time, you know? So it's, it's, um, we're in, you know, we're sort of in this, this brave new world where these massive assets have these single points of failure. Um, uh, you know, like the, like the computers that navigate them. Where was it's, the, uh, where was the ship coming from and where was it going? Port so it was, uh, so it belongs to Evergreen. It was on their, uh, one of their service loops that calls, uh, that calls China and Taiwan. Uh, I think maybe even Japan was on that loop. Uh, so anyway, it calls all those ports in the far East and then transits through the Indian ocean. Uh, it goes through the Strait of Malacca around Singapore and Malaysia uh, and then, you know, enters the, uh, enters the Red Sea from the south and then transits the Suez Canal through the Met up into Rotterdam. Uh, so its path, you know, basically took it three quarters of the way around the world from, you know, from China through the Indian Ocean all the way up into around the northern part of Europe. Uh, so it was, uh, yeah, it was, a, a, that's a huge ship carrying off, you know, an awful extraordinarily large amount of cargo. Um, and then, but and, there's and, really, there's really no better way to the other part of the world from China, uh, as far yeah. as the, the China trade goes with Europe. And then as far as, as far as the carrier, Evergreen is a, or a Taiwanese carrier. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, and this is where a lot of people get confused. You know, there's a lot of stuff out there about the flag of the vessel or who owns the vessel or who operates the vessel. Why is Evergreen's name on it? But it was built in Japan or, you know, whatever it may be. So in, in the shipping world, you, you will have many people involved in um, the ownership and operation of a vessel. Uh, you'll have the ship owner uh, who is actually who financed uh, the, you know, the building of the vessel and, and physically owns title to the ship itself. Um, usually what the ship owner will do is they will lease that vessel even before it's built on a multi-year charter. Uh, to a steamship line or to, to an ocean carrier. In this case, it's Evergreen. Um, so you have a Japanese owner, you have a Taiwanese operator. Um, the vessel is flagged in Panama, which is a thing called flag, you know, a flag of convenience because when it's whatever nation the vessel is flagged under, that's any revenue or labor practices or anything associated with that ship fall under the jurisdiction of that country, uh, not the country of whomever owns it. Um, so you have a Panamanian flag vessel operated by a Taiwanese carrier owned by a Japanese interest and the sailors on the ship were all Indian 
who had been hired by a German ship management company that, that's sort of like the HR and operations manager for these vessels. Uh, so, you know, each ship is really this, this wonder of global, you know, globalized uh, commerce. So Evergreen uh, that, doesn't, doesn't even operate their own ships or, or do they just kind of outsource, you know, certain stuff? Certain ship. aspects of the ship operation are outsourced. So like the labor and crewing in particular, um, bunkering, which is fueling of the ship, um, that type of stuff tends to be outsourced to a vessel management agency. Uh, paying all the port fees and terminal fees and things like that tends to be done by those. Uh, whatever green or any major ocean carrier uh, more or less is, is a sales and management entity. Um, but being a vessel operating common carrier, that means they do take on the liability of what happens with that ship. Okay. So it, it's kind of like a, a regional carrier for like an airline where sure. Endeavor Air is, is united and they're, you know, but, but it's operated by Endeavor Air, even though United is selling the tickets and you get United mm -hmm. miles and all that stuff. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's as close of an analogy as you can get the, you know, it, the, the world of uh, ship owning and ship finance and, and ship operations is, is so... It's so complex, and that's really why it's it's in a lot of ways the 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 perfect business model for a lot of the sort of chicanery that you see in the world uh, economically. If if it was a nefarious deed that helped contribute mm -hmm. to this this ship getting stuck, uh, you know, I, I I don't expect you to have these answers, but but where what would pique your interest in terms of like who has a motive? Is it a nation state? Is it a group of hackers somewhere like mm -hmm. like what do you what do you think would be some plausible uh scenarios around that well in order of you know probably least likely to more likely um would be a non-state um actor that would be like a, a hacking group or some black hat group that just wants to cause mayhem uh which as we've seen is, is uh very possible which uh, mission accomplished really if so <laughs> exactly if so very well done boys um so that that's least likely next would be a sort of a regional competitor or uh someone who has a lot of motive to disrupt egypt in particular um you know egypt's currently involved in some tiffs with sudan which is a pretty much a durable state of affairs ethiopia as well because of the dispute uh, over uh, the dam Ethiopia just built on the Nile. Um, so you've got these issues going on, but th this is a pretty sophisticated uh, sort of, if, if it was a cyber attack on the ship to disable it and cause this, um, what, you've, what you've got is a pretty, um, uh, pretty sophisticated operation to do something like that. Um, so my, my, my premise is, my thesis is, is that this, benefits probably China first, uh, followed pretty closely by Russia. Um, anytime you're talking about an enormous disruption of energy trade to or from Europe, uh, Russia is going to typically be the one that benefits. They're far and away the largest provider of national, uh, natural gas and oil and petroleum products to Europe. Um, I think the last numbers I saw was like 26% of the oil and 40% of the you know LNG. A lot of it runs through pipelines. Um, Russia does have a lot of exposure. They're the number one shipper of petroleum products southbound through uh, the Suez Canal. Um, but if it's if there is a long-term impact of this disruption, it's certainly going to be one of them is going to be uh, Europe and and parts of the Middle East taking a much stronger look at how 
their, you know, their energy products are, are purchased and delivered to them. Um, you know, there's sanctions involved over the Nord Stream 2 pipeline that's being built from Russia directly into Germany. There's the Turk Stream 2 pipeline that's runs through the Black Sea and into Turkey and then up into the Balkans. Uh, that's sort of a southern corridor for uh, Russian energy into Europe. Uh, both of those projects would certainly benefit. Which, uh, which from, that was that was something crazy that you tweeted the other day. I didn't realize there's a pipeline that goes through the the uh, <laughs> through the Black Sea. Like the pipeline mm-hmm. is is through the or basically through mm-hmm. a body of water underneath yeah. the body of water. I didn't even. Mm-hmm. That's wild. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's all, and you know, everybody talks about Nord Stream Two. Well, there's a reason it's called Nord Stream Two. It's because there's already a Nord Stream pipeline that runs yeah. from Russia through the North Sea into Europe. Uh, but what Nord Stream do would, would do is it, it, it dramatically increases the the uh, throughput uh, of energy products to Europe. What kind of debt? I mean, is that built like on the seafloor and it? And it- and it's mm-hmm. bolted to the seafloor, basically, and then and not really, not really bolted. It's assembled and you know, it's assembled and dropped. Huh. <laughs> it just runs underwater. <laughs> God, I mean, you know, it's like I've 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 written I've I've read things about all the undersea cables and all that stuff, but thinking mm-hmm. that there's just straight up, you know, natural gas just pulsing through the the bottom of the ocean. There, it's, it's wild. It, it it is pretty amazing. I mean, when you talk about the energy infrastructure of the world, um, what you realize though is that there's really. For, for as big of an industry as it is, there's really not as many refineries as people may, you know, a lot of people probably think there's, you know, many thousands of refineries in the world that are, you know, refining all of these products and making them. There's, and there's really not, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's hundreds, uh, certainly, uh, lots of them are in Asia. Uh, one just exploded about three hours ago. We were going to uh, ask you about that. It, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it it's, seems like um, there's a bunch of crazy shit happening right now and it doesn't yeah. seem to be too coincidental with, with all the, the sanctions on China mm-hmm. and some of the rhetoric that's been that's kind of going back and forth between China and the EU and and mm-hmm. and Canada and and the uh, U.S. So yeah, I mean, talking like you know just about I mean, shit. It looked like there was another like a huge mechanical failure on another ship, and then there was the refinery blowing up. It just seems like mm-hmm. there's there's kind of some smoke going around here, right? It's uh, it, it, we live in really weird times where, you know, for a long time, uh, nation states, we, we kind of drew a bright line. Now, gray, gray zone conflict was a thing that's been around for a long, long time, uh, hundreds of years, really, when you, when you kind of look at the technical definition of what it is, which is the term for gray zone is basically that space of persuasion or coercion that exists in between diplomacy and war. Um, and, and, and everything in between is kind of the gray zone. And when you talk to military people about the gray zone, they tend to take a look at things like uh, proxies, like the Houthis in Yemen are a proxy for Iranian interests. That, that's gray zone, right? Um, where where I take a look at the gray zones more from a commercial standpoint, because China's doing something that we haven't really seen at scale basically since the 15 and 1600s when, uh, when you know, Holland or, you know, there was the Dutch VOC, uh, which was their massive, you know, quasi merchant mercenary Navy that they had. Um, and then, you know, they talk about the Dutch East India or the Dutch India company and all that in the pirates of the Caribbean movies. Um, that's exactly what it was. Uh, it was, it was a hybrid merchant and warfare type of type of capability that served the crown. Uh, the Brits had it a century later with the British East India company, which is pretty notorious for a lot of reasons. Uh, m- most of them, uh, pretty fair, um, to be notorious about they, they did some really you know crappy things 
Um, but that, that they, they existed as entities that were designed to operate in that gray zone and kind of sort of keep a foot in all the worlds. And, and China's resurrected that concept, not just with Costco, but with their shipbuilding industry, with their maritime militia fleets and fishing vessels, with the way they handle law enforcement and Coast Guard actions in their territorial and extraterritorial waters. Um, and now things like this, they, they see everything uh, everything as a weapon or as a potential way of influencing uh, global events towards their benefit. Um, it, not a lot of people, it, you know, not a lot of nations would, would stand to benefit from a blockade of the Suez Canal. Uh, but China, because of how they buy their energy products, because of how they handle their trade, um, has the least limited exposure of any of the major countries to that where India is very hurt by it. Russia, even to some extent, is hurt by it, although Russia does benefit on net. Um, but you're, now you're talking China, who's still, by and large, that blockade at that point does not hurt them as badly as it does most everybody else. And it drives, uh, I think, a lot of benefits in their favor from their perspective politically. Such as, like, I mean, specifically, just from from an energy perspective, just, just in choking stuff off for Europe versus... I mean, I mean, are there any any larger things at play here where like most of their, I mean, how, like like how are their products and everything coming in? Are they coming in via rail or pipeline or just internally? Um, as far as their energy goes, I mean, they they've got a number of ways that they get their product, but most of it's on water. Um, but it's coming out of the Southern part of the Red Sea that's not blockaded. It's coming out of the Strait of, you know, coming out of the Arabian Gulf and, and through the Strait of Ormuz and it's not blockaded. Um, where China would really get hurt is if uh, something were to happen in the South China Sea or in the Strait of Malacca uh, that would that would hamper them. Uh, but even then, and this is sort of one of the dirty secrets, China buys a lot of energy products from the U.S. too. Mm-hmm. Um, they used to buy, you know, and then they buy a lot from Russia as well, which comes in via pipeline. So, you know, they, they're not really hurt by uh, a blockade of the canal. Europe, on the other hand, is very hurt by it, Russia to some extent, uh, but even the U.S. is hurt by it. You know, we buy 280,000 barrels a day uh, of oil from Saudi Arabia. You know, that's a vessel and a half every week that goes to the Suez Canal that's coming to the U.S. for refining. So it's it really does reshape, you know, if this is a durable blockade, if they end up not being able to float that vessel in the next couple of days, uh, at that point, then they're going to have to start unloading all of those containers off the vessel one at a time, parking them somewhere on, you know, on the ground <laughs> and then make the vessel light enough that they can eventually drag it off the, uh, the rock and, and mud embankment that it's in. How much do those containers on net, like how much do those weigh and how much does the ship weigh? Um, the maximum legal ish weight, it's all varies based on the road laws or rail laws of the destination, but a 40 foot ocean container, and I'm going totally off memory here. I think it's about, uh, 7,500 pounds, uh, 8,000 pounds. And it varies based on the steel and the flooring and all of that, but that's, that's a decent number. Um, if we're loading a, a container in the U S to what we consider max legal weight, it's going to be 44,000 pounds, give or take a few. Uh, but some of those containers, if we load grain, for example, grain going in a container, a 40 foot container to China or to, uh, Vietnam or the Philippines, it's going to have almost 58,000 pounds in it, depending on where it comes out of. Um, that, that's an enormous amount of weight plus the weight of the container, which I think is 66,500 is what's called the stencil weight, which is the max weight of the product and the container itself. Um, 
not all of those containers, of course, are going to be that heavy. A lot of the stuff in that ship is going to be consumer goods. It's going to be things like TVs or pillows or shoes that are lighter. So if you say, okay, let's say the average weight of each container on that vessel is 25,000 pounds plus 8,000 pounds for the weight of the box. Uh, now we're talking 33,000 pounds times eight or 9,000 containers on that ship. So it's, I mean, you're talking a massive amount of weight plus a ship that weighs 199, 200,000 tons on its own. <laughs> That's so, that's so much. I can't even comprehend I know. it. <laughs> oh that's my. massive. Going yeah, back to huge. China too, like it, does this serve their belt and road? Like, does this kind of make that more relevant as well? That whole strategy? It makes the overland rail corridor yeah. that they've built through Western China uh, all the way to, you know, it goes, it kind of winds its way through Kazakhstan and up into Russia and then back down into Central Asia and then, and then into Europe. Um, it certainly makes that a more uh, desirable option. Um, it, also opens up discussion or serious consideration for the northern sea route which goes around you know the eastern tip of of russia and then kind of hugs the coast of russia all the way around to europe and down into the north sea um you know if that route were to be completely open and active right now uh, as far as a year-round basis it cuts the transit time by about 40 percent um you know so you're talking you know, a, a greatly, and, and, and Russia would be happy to see that. Not every ship is equipped, of course, to go through, you know, very cold, icy climates like that, but a lot of them can. Is that, uh, the newer, the newer is that just starting can. to open up, like, seasonally right now? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So it's not it's not open year-round, but it's open, summer, like, summertime. There's a lot of ships that take that route, or is it, or is it still kind of a new thing? And, and it's a just new-ish, dipping their it's toe. a new-ish thing. Um, if... You know, the current ice melt pattern, you know, for that part of the world holds, you're talking probably one to two years uh, before that route's open almost all year round. Um, but even then, if it's open eight months out of the year, uh, you're still talking, uh, relieving a great amount of uh, uh, transit stress through the Indian Ocean and through the Suez Canal and through the Med. So it's um, it certainly shifts the balance of power uh, further towards a coalition or an axis of China and Russia. Uh, as far as Europe is concerned on the, uh, the imports of uh, products that they take from the Far East. How much does it cost to go through the Suez Canal? Does it, does it vary by time of yeah, day very, or week? So, or? Yes, they have a formula that they use. And in fact, you'll see on a lot of ships something, there's dead weight tonnage, then you'll hear what's called sewage, Suez tonnage. Um, so the Suez tonnage is, is a formula based on how, you know, how big the ship is, what its weight is in the water, how much of the canal it takes up. Um, they factor in all sorts of things. So the largest ships, I mean, the, the tolls will be hundreds of thousands of dollars per voyage. So Egypt's just losing money hand over fist. It's unbelievable. I think I, I don't know this for sure offhand, but I, I think it is, if not the, it's like one of the top two or three revenue, revenue producing items for Egypt each wow. year. It's a massive, massively important part of their economy. I, and that's what I was going to ask you. Um, I'm, I very much know uh, because it's a fluid situation. We ha- we have no mm-hmm. idea in actuality, but as you start to think about the ramifications that this blockage is going to have, what what are the most important um, uh, dominoes that that are going to fall as, as a result of of this blockage? Whether and, and let's just assume it probably gets resolved. Like, let's say it gets resolved quickly with the king tide, uh, but then maybe alternatively, what if it takes weeks longer if they have to manually unload uh, the cargo containers one by one? It, mm-hmm. uh, have you have you started to, like, tease that out and, and what mm-hmm. that means? <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's so every major ocean carrier that runs the Eurasian trade runs through the Suez Canal. Um, so this impacts Maersk, it impacts MSC, Hapag Lloyd, CMA, Costco, Evergreen, all of them. Um, so immediately what you're going to have to see is there's still a lot of ships parked there. That That is job number one is to deal with all of the vessels that are currently sitting somewhere inside or on the north or south end of the canal because there's people forget there's still a lot of ships that are in the great bitter lake and things like that which are actually physically inside the the canal proper um so you have all these ships at anchor you have all these crews that need to eat the the ships at some point will have to take on fuel um, you've got chemical holding tanks on these ships, which, you know, if you own an RV, we call them gray water tanks. And, you know, it's, 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 uh, the, you know, the crew, yeah, they're still using the restroom, right? That stuff all has to get <laughs> some unsavory some shit. Yeah, it, it is, it is, it's, it's a rough condition, you know? So you, you have all these things that are happening with these hundreds of ships. So figuring out what to do about them is the next thing. They've already started to tow some of the vessels or get them turned around and, and get them moving out of the Red Sea and, and moving towards the Cape of Good Hope to go the long, you know, the, the Vasco da Gama way around yeah, South what's Africa. The, what's the thought process there? Like, are there certain ships that just aren't equipped for that? Or is it pretty much like that's that's the only option right now? And are there some that are waiting it out and some that, have, that, are, that are already mm-hmm. four or five days into that journey? Yeah, there's some, there's some that are waiting it out. Everybody's making their own calculations right now based on whatever data they think you know, the, the, that's accurate. But the fact of the matter is, is that you've got the salvage company, you know, reports are leaking to the media about certain condition of affairs on the ground. Suez Canal authorities saying things, the ocean carriers are all saying, you know, we don't know what we don't know, but we promise swears we're trying to make this as easy as possible. And everybody, uh, it's an extremely fluid situation. So everybody's doing their own risk calculus. Evergreen has already started turning their ships towards the Cape of Good Hope. They were the first to do that. Uh, Maersk is doing it. MSC is now doing it. I would imagine the other major steamship lines or container carriers are going to be doing the same. How long um, is that journey? The, the calculation here is it adds 10 to 12 days each way. Um, your issue with Cape of Good Hope too is that it is a notoriously difficult part of the world to transit weather-wise. Uh, you get a lot of rogue waves and, and um, you know, it can be, it can be pretty dangerous. That, that's why the Suez Canal, not just from a time standpoint, but the Suez Canal was opened in the mid 1800s specifically because the Brits and, and, you know, a lot of the other, you know, global trading powers at the time were really tired of losing ships around the Southern coast of Africa and then guys getting eaten by sharks and stuff. So, um, <laughs> you know, it, it's a situation where it adds 10 to 12 days each way. You're talking a lot of extra fuel. This, you know, the bigger ships burn, depending on how fast they're steaming, they burn 70 to $90,000 of fuel a day. Uh, so you're talking adding almost a million dollars each way. Um, and if they speed the ships up, it's an exponential curve. It's not linear, right? So if they speed yeah. up within a certain band, it doesn't really change fuel consumption. If they get above a certain point, fuel consumption dramatically skyrockets with these ships. Um, the whole point, one of the reasons these things are built like massive floating barges is because within 18 to 20 knots, they're they're extremely fuel efficient, right? But if you start steaming them at 20, 21, 22 knots, trying to pick up, you know, trying to pick up a day or two, fuel consumption just it just skyrockets with these things. So, you know, they're not nuclear powered. These things all run on some form of heavy fuel oil. Um, you know, an aircraft carrier, the aircraft carrier, people don't realize how fast an aircraft carrier goes. The top speed on those things is over 30 knots. It's like 35 miles an hour on land. I mean, that's then, you know, for a floating city to go that fast is only possible because they're nuclear powered. So when you get around, you know, when you get around the Cape of, uh, of Good Hope, you're still not out of the woods yet then you got to transit up the western seaboard of africa and run into the gulf of guinea where there's huge amounts of violent 
piracy happening. Well, that was my next people. question. What what the fuck are the Somalian pirates doing? Like this seems like it's like their <laughs> Christmas. Their, yeah, this is their Super Bowl, right? Well, well, now they've got a limited window, right? They have all the ships that that the you know they would have to try to hit while they're still inside the Gulf of Aden on the Horn of Africa there. Um, but you know, any new ship that's actually you know charting a new route around Cape of Good Hope coming out of Asia uh, is not going to hug the coastline and go you know kind of through India and and the Maldives and and up the coast. It, it's going to go straight across the Indian Ocean. Uh, once it breaks out at, at, at Malaysia and Indonesia there. So um, the Somali pirates aren't going to get anywhere near it. Uh, the, the risk then becomes the, the piracy that's happening in the Gulf of Guinea and West Africa there, which, you know, at its peak right now is, is probably worse than, than in terms of violence and loss of life and loss of cargo uh, is worse than the Somali incidents back, you know, in the last 5, 10, 15 years. But all these ships that are, like you know, stuck stuck in the Red Sea, stuck in the Gulf of Aden, and then going mm-hmm. south around. Like, wouldn't they have to kind of hug the coastline, or or are they just going so far out because that's their that's it's just a no fly zone. They're they're just going straight <laughs> off the do. coast for a couple hundred miles, and then and then south. They do hug the coastline. Um, they really don't run. I mean, you know, Somalia doesn't. I mean, it, it's a bigger country. I think than people realize it occupies pretty much the entire corner of the Horn of Africa. But um, your you know, once you, you pretty quickly get out of, uh, of the danger zone, once you start to get like south of Habio and, and, you know, more towards the Kenyan border, okay. uh, once they're in Kenyan waters, they're fine. And then they're just going to sail in between, you know, Madagascar and, and the African mainland and, you know, kind of go through, go around the, go around the tip. But, um, it's, it is, it is still a dangerous journey, you know, and they have to account for fuel. They have to account for accommodations for the crew and things like that. So it's, uh, you know, you're taking essentially 10 to 12% of the transit time. If this, if this went a whole year, um, each of those ships is going to make one to two less voyages per year between Europe and Asia because of the extra time. Going back to the piracy too, like have they, yeah. in the last decade or so, have they upgraded all these shit as far as the, the capabilities and the defenses of these ships, whether it be sound stuff or water cannons or whatever like if they upgraded some of the defenses of these ships not really (laughs) i mean they 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 say they have for insurance you know because they have to tell the insurance companies that but really short of having you know some very uh capable marksmen and fighters on the ships uh or hiring uh, a maritime security crew to come alongside the ship and, and basically protect it as it goes through some of the more dangerous parts um, really short of doing that. The, the crews are certainly not equipped to fight off pirates. If, uh, if they don't have maritime security on these ships, then, then they're, they're probably going to take the ship if they really decide to. Because okay. Some of these pirates are very well armed. They've got speed yeah. boats, they've got RPGs, they've got, lots of, they've got lots of rifles and body armor and everything else. Uh, from an from a, like a, a insurance perspective, I saw, the, mm-hmm. you know, I saw that all that stuff starting to float around now. Like, what's the... Mm-hmm. What's the liability of this of this ship and and of Evergreen on this? Who and 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 who bears the liability? I mean, it's it's uh, the cost starts in the billions in terms of you know what what the potential exposure could be for the insurance carrier. Now, Evergreen themselves, 
this is something that not a lot of people talk about, but there's something called the law of general average. So when an ocean carrier experiences a force majeure event, which is one of the reasons why they're sticking with the, the wind story, right? If it was, it's yeah. not an act of God if the mm-hmm. ship was actually, you know, hacked or in some way run aground because of operator error. Uh, if it's operator error, if it's if it's a hacking or a cyber breach of the systems, whatever, that's not necessarily a force majeure event. Uh, force majeure, literally meaning act of God, uh, would be the windstorm and the sandstorm, which is why they're sticking with it. Mm. Because if if that's the case, then the, then then the Suez Canal Authority, then Evergreen, uh, the ship management company, everybody involved, their liability now is limited under something called the Law of General Average, which the Law of General Average basically says um, the ocean carrier adds up the total value of loss associated with the incident um, and then divides it equally amongst all the people who have cargo on the ship. Um, it's just, it doesn't matter if you have a hundred thousand dollars worth of goods in the container or $5,000 worth of goods in the container, you get 500 boxes is where the liability caps out at per container. But so, um, so from that perspective though, like, wouldn't it be because so they're liable for the delays of these other ships that are, like that have been encountered because of the blockage? If it was found to be incompetence, yes. So, they so would, they would likely be treated as liable for the losses associated with everybody involved okay. in the incident. How does that differ from say like a, a tractor trailer? Like, actually we saw the, we saw the evergreen <laughs> tractor trailer or, you know, yeah. container. I thought that was, that was poetic almost. I think um, that was Nan, I think that happened in Nanjing, China yeah. actually is where that was. Yeah. <laughs> um, which, you know, for those that haven't seen it, it was basically blocking the, uh, the roadway, the, like a, like the a roadway and then <laughs> Chinese state media pulled it up and said, Hey, you know, look at this. Isn't this funny? Um, but Ever, you know, again. yeah, let's say it's like I 75 here in the States. Let's say there's a, a tractor trailer, uh, you know, overturns and I 75 is closed for a day and a half. Mm-hmm. That, that truck wouldn't be liable for everybody behind it. That's sitting in a, a, a massive traffic jam on I 75. Would they? It depends. Um, if there is a, and, and it's different because you're talking about like U.S. domestic law, for example, versus mm. admiralty law, which is okay. an internationally recognized uh, system of uh, governance as far as risk and liability on water. Um, in that case, if, if the truck through negligence or some sort of mechanical issue that was preventable caused a death or a fatality, yeah, they're, they're, yeah, death, death for sure, but but just just from but like the, the like goes, delay no. and loss of business. Yeah, mm-hmm. not on the road, but but in in the global commons, uh, like the Suez Canal, where you're mm-hmm. talking about international waters, things get treated a little bit differently. Um, I think the claims are already starting for lost business related to the incident. Um, again, this is why whatever the real story is, we're probably never going to know unless like a Julian Assange gets a hold of you know. It gets a hold of secret records proving that this you know, ship was in some way in this condition due to operator error or, or mm-hmm. you know criminal action. Um, they're going to stick with the act of God story. And so what's going to happen is, is everybody who's got cargo on that ship is experiencing loss is going to get $500 from Evergreen per container. Uh, and then the insurance carrier is going to have to pay a certain amount. Uh, that's all negotiated out. Um, and then if that, uh, whoever holds title to the cargo at the time of the incident, uh, depending on what, you know, shipping ter- terms of, you know, terms of sale they were using or Inco term. Um, well then if they had supplemental cargo insurance, like all risk cargo insurance, which this accounts for, 
uh, then they would they would probably get their full claim from their carrier. So you're definitely going to see insurance rates begin to skyrocket in the industry. Um, you're also going to see, you know, obviously rates are going to go up because of the extra transit time. It reduces capacity uh, in the market. So this, this again, if they clear this tomorrow, this is going to have a tail on it that endures for months or maybe even years in some cases. So I, I kind of got you started down this road earlier, but I want to mm-hmm. I want to circle back to it. You know, we're I'm let, let's say average listener uh, located here in the states. You know, middle mm-hmm. of America. Do we have any idea how this is going to affect my day to day life uh, in the next you know one two three six twelve months? Is that do you, do you have any guesses that way? <laughs> If this begins to spin off some really weird um, second and third order effects in the energy industry, for example, you could begin to see energy prices climb fairly quickly. You've already started to see it a little bit here. Here in the U.S., we can mitigate that to some extent because we can fire up the wells and and do more fracking and stuff. But, um, you know, now we have an administration that's, you know, maybe a little different from the last one in terms of its receptiveness to fracking. It's pretty hostile to fracking. so, but at some, at some extent, we, we do have the ability to kind of drill our way out of this from an energy side. Um, the impact is going to be more greatly felt, I think, um, in Europe, of course. Um, it will have some impact on ocean rates and things like that here. But, but by and large, we in the U.S. are divorced uh, in some way from this issue other than the energy. Um, it impacts some amount of goods coming to the U.S. from Europe. Um, because some of those vessels will run a loop uh, that involves transatlantic type cargo or it pulls capacity out of the market for the transatlantic because you, they need to get more cargo moving to and from Asia, so they need to put more ships in. Um, but now, I mean, on balance, this doesn't really impact people in the U.S. on a, on a long-term basis much. Um, so, we, so, we, so we can laugh at the memes that we see on, on Twitter? <laughs> Is that how we're... <laughs> Yeah, you, you can't. Yeah, I mean, the average person safely can. Someone like me is going to continue to lose hair over this for a long time. Sure, sure. Um, but but there are certainly some interesting geopolitical considerations that are going to arise from this, um, and those are, are those are really going to bear watching um, as far as how this administration, you know, the Biden administration, responds to them. This is a very uh, unique challenge um, that, particularly when you take into account all of the other issues that we've been having in the maritime industry. We've had several vessels have uh, massive uh, mechanical issues or loss of cargo at sea. Uh, the ONE APIS is, is a real famous example of that. Uh, back, it was, I think, just after Thanksgiving is when the incident happened where uh, about 1,400 containers went overboard on a, you know, out of 7,000 on that oh. ship. ONE is a Japanese carrier. Um, you know, those pictures are really famous. It's a giant peak ship at the ocean with a bunch of containers, like, you know, <laughs> toppled over like dominoes. Um, they just finished reworking that vessel in Japan and sent it and, and started sending it back to the U S and that happened in November. Um, and now here we are in March and they just got done. They're not even fully done. They're almost done working that vessel. Um, you know, the Maersk S and the Maersk Eindhoven, um, there's just, th- these issues just keep stacking up in really profound, unexpected ways. And, to what extent it's the result of um, rushed maintenance or uh, COVID or uh, the, the operations tempo of these companies being so high that they're cutting corners. All of that's probably playing a role, but, but there again, we haven't seen this level of catastrophe uh, in the box ship industry ever. 
Mm. Um, we've never seen so many huge, enormous events stack up like this in such a short period of time. And, and, and like, if it is, you know, very nefarious, then it seems like it's, it's kind of a, it's like, Hey, here's the test case. We're doing this and it's working. Let's keep doing it. Let's keep doing more of it. Right. It's a, <laughs> Well, it, it was interesting. I started making notes uh, yesterday, just just thinking about a lot of these things. And we've we've seen, you know, the top <clears throat> the top seven ocean carriers in the world. Uh, Maersk is number one. MSC is number two. CMA and Costco kind of battle it out for number three and four. And then you've got Hapag Lloyd and and uh, and uh, O and E and Evergreen. Um, I think O and E is actually number five, and then Hapag Lloyd and then Evergreen. Um, almost every one of those carriers, with the exception of Costco. Um, has had some form of lost uh, CMA has not yet had it to my knowledge. Um, but other than CMA and Costco, the other five have had major incidents of lost containers at sea or major mechanical issues with their ships or, um, you know, ship, uh, ship turns <laughs> sideways and, and the choke point of the world. Um, so, you know, here again, to, to what extent it's a result of natural forces resulting from the pandemic and, and all the, you know, the fat tail of that, uh, versus nefarious uh, things. It's probably some combination of the two. The fact that Costco hasn't been hit yet uh, is interesting to me um, because anybody who does business with Costco uh, and knows that, you know, sometimes they're, they, they get a little fast and loose with the rules. So, um, you know, particularly not in the, in the U S they're, they're governed by, you know, they're governed by U S law. Um, they, they don't really cut corners much here in the U S but in other places around the world, it's, it's, it's amazing. Um, that they have not yet seen a, a major incident at sea the way the other major carriers have. Huh. Uh, I guess last time we talked to you, we, it was this is probably what four weeks ago. Cool. Yeah, I want to say yeah. mid mid-ish February, yeah. third week of February. Has any uh, like aside from the Suez Canal stuff, has anything started to has anything demonstrably changed in the last month, uh, Trans-Pacific or like? Is it making progress in a certain way? Because like we we've seen it personally with our shipments that we have coming into the country, where mm-hmm. you know they're saying, hey, they're not sending some of the ships back to Asia; they're sending them on other routes. Like there's 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 just limited inventory coming mm-hmm. you know coming in here to the states. Is that has that started to unwind itself a little bit, or is it is it worse than ever? Um, it's about to be as bad as ever here in a couple of weeks. Um, we went through a pe- you know, period post Chinese new year, which happens every year where the carriers blank, you know, they do what's called blank sailings, which means they skip, yeah. they skip a, a port call on a weekly rotation. Um, you know, China completely, not completely, but like 80% shuts down during that time. And they don't want to just have vessels, you know, these massive ships sitting around with crew that they have to pay waiting for the freight to turn back on and, and people to start, you know, stuffing containers again. Um, they do still run ships. There's huge backups in the ports, uh, particularly in China, but also in, in Taiwan and, and South Korea is as bad as, you know, the port of Busan is as bad as any of the Chinese ports. Uh, Southeast Asia is in terrible shape. Uh, you know, Vietnam, Thailand, Cambodia, uh, it's, 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 <laughs> it's worse there trying to get freight out than, than out of China right now. Um, so, it, it, but because of the blank sailings, we, we briefly had a period here in late February, early to mid-March where uh, they were able to clear a lot of the vessels out off the West Coast um, and, and get containers at least off the ships and turn the ships back around and get them back to Asia. But now that the blank sailings have, have stopped, you're going to start to see the cargo flow pick right back up. Port activity in China is just as busy as it's ever been uh, in the last six months. Uh, purchase orders are still, I mean, everybody is still hand to mouth scrapping for space. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, freight rate season is, is upon us here. So the big guys like Amazon and Walmart and Target and Best Buy, Bed Bath & Beyond, Ace Hardware, all those guys that buy huge quantities, um, they're setting their rates right now um, or have already done it. That'll be the new benchmark. But I mean, the carriers aren't going to really honor those rates past a certain point. They're going to tell Walmart, look, we'll give you 50 spots on each ship at that, at that low rate. But if you want any other containers on that ship, you're paying market rates. Inf- uh, inflation is, is upon us. <laughs> it is. It is. And that's really the TP trade. The Trans-Pacific is really where Americans are going to feel the pinch a lot more than whatever's happening at the Suez Canal right now. Um, it's very, very difficult and more expensive for companies to get things made uh, in China right now. Uh, the, the, the lead times are much longer. Um you know, you're talking four, six, 12 weeks out, depending on what it is. I mean, right now you can't get it. If you're an importer who imports furniture right now, you're almost a year out at the factories in, in China and Vietnam. Uh, so it's, it is tough. I mean, that's really where we're going to feel the inflation more than anything, you know, domestically because of all the disruptions we've had in trucking and rail, we're going to feel the food inflation and, and to some extent fuel inflation um, where, you know, we talk about consumer goods have been so cheap for so long. Shelves are going to be a little bit more empty than they'd been, except for toilet paper. I want to like encourage people to stop freaking buy, panic buying toilet paper. <laughs> Tron God was sakes, telling man. me that earlier that there might be a no, global I was shortage. At his tweet, and he said we yeah. only import seven to eight percent, right? <laughs> we're, we're we're somewhat immune to that here in the yeah. U.S., right? We import seven to eight percent of our annual, and and by the way, the U.S. consumes far more toilet paper than any other country. And it's not even freaking close, man. It's like, you know, the world's using three squares and we're like wrapping our hands in it. Like it's a freaking That's mitten. Like, dude, I, you know, <laughs> my mom started buying Scott toilet paper, like the really thin stuff, but super durable when I was young. And like, I just adapted to that. Is your mom a janitor at a middle school? <laughs> <laughs> no. And whenever I go anywhere, that's got like the four ply Charmin, I'm like, this is totally unnecessary. Wiping my butt with a towel. What is going on here? Um, yeah, I mean, here here in the U.S., I mean, the, the U.S. actually has a really robust paper and pulp industry. Uh, you know, like like I you know I tweeted out, you know, we import seven to eight percent of our of our toilet paper consumption, um, and of that, sixty five percent of it comes from Canada or Mexico. So you're talking, you know, exposure to maybe three uh, percent, uh, you know, of our of our uh, you know, I almost I almost used a <laughs> <laughs> inappropriate <laughs> euphemism for toilet paper, but, um, you, you know, on that particular issue, we don't have a ton of exposure, yeah. but, uh, still, if you want your PlayStation fives or if you want new furniture or whatever, you're going to be waiting a while. Or shit cars. Like I think like cars are like the one thing between the semiconductor, mm-hmm. uh, shortage. And then just, you know, like thinking about, all right, like German cars or, um, you know, like those, yeah. you know, all the components probably coming from Asia on those ships that are stuck right now. They're, you got a shortage of stuff anyway. It's everything, man. Yeah. It's, it's headlamp assemblies and yeah. wiring harnesses and radios and tires and yeah. and uh, tires has their own special issue going on. You know, half the t- half the tires coming out of Asia are subject to some sort of major uh, excess, you know, tariffs or duties over and above the normal duty rate because of anti-dumping or whatever. So, um, yeah, everything's everything's just getting more expensive right now. But it's it's because it's taken forever to make and then it's taken forever to get here and to get it here you have to pay a lot more to do it so um you know we as a country we particularly in north america have a lot more exposure to what's happening that way than than we do to um you know the eurasia stuff but it's going to be a major problem for them it's going to take forever to unwind shit is bleak man is there like 
Give give us some good yeah, good see, news on the choke point. Positive yeah. going on what? out there. <laughs> um. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, I, I will say this, this is something that is actually, um, it's really, it's really, really obscure, but is actually a, a really positive thing. Um, Savannah, the port of Savannah has, is continuing to extend and expand their rail capacity, what we call IPI or inland point intermodal, which is going to places like Memphis or Louisville or Chicago, Indianapolis, whatever. Um, the more the East coast ports have the ability to take on the burden of getting things to places like Dallas or Memphis uh, or Chicago. And they have the capacity to do that at the, uh, or close to the scale that Los Angeles or um, Oakland or Seattle Tacoma does, the more pressure that alleviates, you know, alleviates off the West coast. Uh, We are already starting to see some of that happen. Um, So that, I mean, in terms of rebalancing freight flows into the U.S., Houston, I'd like to see Houston step up and play a bigger role. I'd certainly like to see Savannah and Charleston and Norfolk continue to grow as well. Uh, New York is already pretty much at max capacity. um, And New York's really, really tough, like four months out of the year because of all the ice, you know, all the ice and and just terrible weather they get up there. So uh, in the winter. What about Jacksonville? Um, Nobody ever mentioned mentions jacksonville or like do we just not have a good a good port here <laughs> I, mean, I know it's small but well no jacksonville port's actually really fantastic um it's a lot of know, roll a, on roll off too right it is it is i mean it's it's a major port that services like the military sealift command um you know has a very very strong government presence uh, it's a major jones act port where you see a lot of like crowley for example that's their headquarters yeah um tropical shipping you know calls there so it what? services a lot of the Caribbean and Central American trade. What's the Jones um, Act? What's that? What's the Jones Act? Oh, God. Uh, that's probably a whole separate podcast. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's called the Jones Shipping Act in 1920. And, and uh, basically, it's a very it's a protectionist law that requires that any, any ships that are conducting intra-U.S. commerce, so that would be to Guam since it's a, you know, a territory or to Puerto Rico, um, Anything, if you're carrying basically anything from a U.S. to a U.S., it has to be on a U.S. built ship, flagged and operating, you know, flagged as a U.S. operating a U.S. crew. Gotcha. Um, <laughs> if you do a search for Jones Act on Twitter, you'll see it's like, I mean, it's literally, I mean, it's, it's a bloodbath, man. It's like, it's like watching sports fans get after each other. Um <laughs> it's, it's unbelievable. And, and I take kind of a neutral stance on it. I, I do see the benefit of it. I also see where it's got real problems uh, that need to be addressed. If it's going to be updated sort of for the modern world we live in. I think I remember the Act, they like it, suspended yeah, it during it. the hurricane, right? Or, or like after the hurricane down in Puerto Rico, did they suspend yes. that? Okay. I was going to say, it sounds they did, they did suspend it. Yeah. But, but even then, you know, Maersk's ships that were running to port, you know, supplies to Puerto Rico, uh, were, were there U.S. flagships that they run in, in the maritime trade for for the U.S. government, the U.S. military? Uh, Crowley has all their ships are U.S. flagged, as far as I know. Um, so, did they suspend Jones Act? Yeah, but going to Puerto Rico, it was always going to be sort of the main suspects yeah. anyway, yeah. whether they suspended it or not. So, I think something else good news would be like you know international flights seem to be picking up too, right? That's 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 a they small are. safety valve, but it's probably a good thing for you know produce or seafood or meat and you know Mm -hmm. smaller smaller shipments right well if you're talking about for example like a lot of fresh produce and vegetables and fish and things like that you know a lot of that stuff that we get out of uh parts of europe or south america and central america that stuff's not really being disrupted much yeah um those ships are still moving 
you know, the Chiquita, you know, the Dole and Chiquita banana ships are still uh, carrying the cargo that they're carrying. So, um, you know, we're not seeing a lot of that disruption in the North South traffic between North America and South America. Uh, and that really is, that really is a positive. I mean, your most con- far and away, your most constricted stuff right now is certainly Trans-Pacific or Eurasian. What, we're, we're, we're late on a Sunday. I feel bad <laughs> taking any more of your, uh, of your time, Huntsman. Uh, any, any parting questions from you, TC? No, that's, that, that should cover it. Uh, uh, anything we've missed or any, any, any parting thoughts for the listeners that you have? What's your prediction? What do you think the, <laughs> when do you think the ship's getting, getting dislodged? If we catch lightning in a bottle, um, they'll be able to safely, you know, safely pull it out uh, here in the next two to three days uh, with the king tide. But they've set themselves a deadline of Tuesday. Uh, if they can't get anything done tomorrow and into Tuesday morning, you know, Egypt time, they're just going to start unloading the ship and trying to make it lighter so it's easier to, to, to move. Uh, my sense of these things is, is I mean, it's ex- <laughs> they have to be beyond careful because if they if they don't dredge correctly, if they push when they should pull, if they do this, if they do that, um, the, the, the ship could easily develop some pretty serious stresses or possibly even uh, break. Um, you know, and the implications of that are, you know, far, far too, far too great to comprehend. Um, you'd be talking a month's long shutdown at the canal as opposed to weeks. So they're going to go cautiously. Um, they're going to keep, you know, obviously they're going to keep working pretty much 24 seven, but it certainly has to be done safely. My sense is they probably get the ship dislodged in a week, a week and a half. Uh, but even then, they're going to have to get it through the canal. They're going to have to safety check. They're going to have to make sure that when they dislodge it, it doesn't puncture the hole and start leaking fuel oil uh, up and down the canal. Um, yeah, So, even, but even if my prediction's right, you're still talking, you know, months, really, for this to sort of unwind itself in terms of all the carriers adjusting to uh, the new schedules. I, last question. Long term, do you think there's mm-hmm. any good to be gleaned from this? Like, do you think, it, you know, it'll be... A, this, a, a teaching opportunity yeah this stuff will be more avoidable or there'll be precautions put in place or or is it just like i'll expect more of this stuff in the future it's certainly we got to this point because the average person uh, had no idea how the world worked they had no idea to what extent globalization and offshoring and things like that enabled us to buy a lot of cheap stuff mm-hmm. um so i think now that people now that the average person is suddenly aware of the fact that a single ship in a single body of water can grind the world's economy to a halt through uncertainty. Um, this may result in a lot of people thinking, okay, well maybe we do need to be making more stuff closer to home. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I'm certainly here for that. That's, you know, if you can safely and, and economically reshore or near shore, bring stuff to Mexico or to parts of Canada or, uh, maybe source the components overseas, but do final manufacturing and assembly here in the U.S. Anything we can do to shorten supply chains um, is is at least an idea that's very much worth exploring. And I think I think this incident and some of the others that we've seen uh, and talked about will will hopefully drive that attitude at the at the common person level. I, I'm hopeful. I, it doesn't mean it will happen, but I am hopeful that at least that starts the discussion. Awesome. I love it. Uh, I have, sorry, I have one other question, but I think it's all good. I, I listening to the first podcast, you mentioned you were a uh, a baseball coach, a travel baseball coach. Mm-hmm. I need to know if you've ever been ejected from any games. <laughs> I have yet to be ejected from a game. Oh, I love, um, I love to hear that. As a coach, <laughs> okay. I've been run, I've been run from a few games as a player in my life, but. Um, 
I think probably the low light of my uh, baseball career was throwing at the umpire in high school. <laughs> Hell yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> I didn't like his, I didn't like his zone and uh, I, I threw as many high strikes as I could and, and until my catcher missed one. So um, <laughs> oh. I think he knew cause as soon as he got clipped in the, <laughs> as soon as he got clipped in the mask, he, he ran me. So. <laughs> How's the squad looking this year? So we have two teams. Um, I, I went ahead and, and uh, it's a 10 new team. And uh, last year I just had one squad and we had so many kids that, uh, that tried out uh, that weren't able to play last year because of COVID. Uh, a lot of rec leagues shut down. They didn't have travel ball for some of these kids. Uh, I went ahead and made the decision to, to basically build a, you know, what we call a red and blue team, which is a, you know, sort of an elite, you know, highly competitive, go to all the big tournaments kind of team. Um, and then a more of a developmental type of team. And, uh, God, man, I, I'm so proud and pleased with the progress of these kids. I mean, the, the, the elite team is playing exactly as I expected. Um, hyper coachable, uh, unbelievably good. Um, very, very, very happy with them. The developmental team though, these kids are, I mean, it's just leaps and bounds, uh, as we work with them and, and they start to kind of, you know, kind of get their sea legs under and baseball wise again. So, awesome. uh, a lot of wonderful families associated with the program. I screen the families before I screen the kids. Oh. Um, I'll take a kid from a good family that, that, you know, is, is they're involved, they're positive, they're energetic, they're happy that they, their kid shows up on time. Uh, and, and the kids got heart and attitude and things like that. We can teach the skills, but you can't teach heart. You can't teach attitude. You can't teach good parenting. Um, and that's the kind of stuff that'll undermine a team far more than wins and losses on the field. God, that's 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 the good stuff. wisdom right yeah. there. Yeah, uh, you're not a Cardinals fan, are you? Uh, yeah. Oh my God. This... <laughs> no, I'm sorry about that. You can't win them all. <laughs> I know. I know. If only Trevor Bauer were still pitching for my team. We win our first no. uh, Cy Young in in franchise history, oldest franchise <laughs> in baseball, and then he, goes and to then the he immediately leaves to our what was our our biggest rival back in the set in the heyday. Uh, it's it, it, man, it, it's brutal uh, being a small market team. Even the Cardinals, to some extent, are technically a small market team, even though they've got a pretty big team budget. But um, I, you know, if you're talking about teams that are just willing to spend, I have now the Padres. Weirdly enough, have really stepped up. They made some huge deals uh, over the winter. But um, when you're just talking about a team that just has what feels like billions of dollars to throw at the problem of winning a baseball game, I don't know how you outspend the Yankees or the Dodgers. I know. Uh, at, the, at this point, the Yankees pitching rotation is insane. Uh, you know, they've got Garrett Cole. They've got Corey Kluber. It's, I, what do you, <laughs> and they're getting on. a lot smarter organizationally, yeah. which sucks. <laughs> it was always fun when the Yankees were managed really dumb. They yeah. just had a lot of talent, but every now and again, it would just totally blow up in their face. But exactly. now, they're, you know, now they're into yeah. the analytics and becoming a, like a, like a, unfortunately the Houston Astros and the Red Sox and everybody else, you know, built, you know, the money ball approach. Uh, now all of a sudden when you give a team that's got a $200 million budget, yeah. the, the wisdom of statistics, it's, it gets, it gets really frightening, unfortunately. So Cashman just became self-aware. I think Cashman did become self-aware. Like yeah. the AIGM bot of baseball has become very self-aware, and now he's like yeah. the freaking Terminator. He's he's been um his run there has been unbelievable. It's been pretty amazing. Yeah, it his, really, his really longevity. Has. They've the, had some years they did a lot with very little, relatively yeah. speaking. But I mean, to I mean they they poached Luke Voigt from the Cardinals, and you know look what Voigt has done for them. Uh, he's been, <laughs> when he's healthy, he's an absolute monster. So, yeah, you know, when you take that kind of stuff into account, it's like, oh, the Cardinals picked up Arenado. Well, fantastic. But what are you going to do about the eight other holes that you have in the roster compared to the Dodgers or the Yankees when it comes to playoff time? And the, and the Dodgers plucked uh, 
Friedman from the Tampa Bay Rays, which, you know, it's tough. Uh, Huntsman, that's another <laughs> podcast. Maybe you and I can, uh, can, can, can chat choke points of uh, Major League Baseball someday. Um, no, I'm a, I'm a baseball junkie for sure. Yeah. Well, awesome. Thank you so much for the time and insight. Uh, the folks are going to love it. Um, this, this is, they can't get enough of it. I know. And, and we can't either. Tron and I, this is, this is such a thrill. So very much appreciate it. Yeah. No worries guys. Appreciate you having me on. And, uh, yeah, I know it's late on a Sunday. It's uh damn the tournaments for going too long. So <laughs> sorry about that. No, 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 no. All, all good.